Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. First of all, thanks very much for the opportunity to join you today and, and speak. Uh, it's a very hard act, of course, coming after those two speeches. So, uh, and I have a confession to make too. Uh, this time last week, I was in Bangkok and uh, I was working with a group of senior military officers from around the region. By Monday night, there was martial law declared. By Friday when I left, there was a coup. So I'm you know, just... Take with a grain of salt whatever I'm going to say. My track record's not that good. Uh, and I'll ask you to bring up the slides if they can, because I actually have a few pictures of things. Uh, I want to start with where we are at the moment, that magnificent continent uh, where we sit today. It, it dominates this part of the world. I remember Alexander Downer always used to have the maps with Australia right at the centre. But as you can see, uh, there's a chance that it can progressively get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the actual caption there at the bottom says, Lost Australia. Lost Australia, what have we lost? Well, it begins with understanding something of what we once were. Now, I know that the history of uh, Australia, certainly since the time of European settlement, has been a very chequered one. Uh, there have been some quite disgraceful things that have been done in our name over the centuries particularly to Indigenous people and to other vulnerable people. But we also need to remember that what Australia used to be known for was not just the size of its land mass or its comparative wealth, but this was a country once of extraordinary social innovation. In South Australia, the first place in the world to bring into existence full political rights for everybody. The votes for women had happened earlier in New Zealand, but not only could you vote if you were a woman, and in fact the person, irrespective of what group you belonged to, everybody had equal political rights back at the last part of the 19th century. Not only could you do that, but you could also be elected to Parliament. And it was the first place in the world in which that was done. The introduction of secret ballots, we take them for granted now in, in elections, and yet it used to be known internationally as the Australian ballot. All sorts of social innovations grew out. The campaign which started overseas for the eight-hour day, the rise of trade unions. Australia was as much known, as was New Zealand, for its progressive social policies as it was for anything else. And yet, although we may have many other exceptional achievements which the world might look to in the future, I get a sense, as many do at the moment, that that place that we used to occupy on the map has been shrinking and getting smaller with every passing year. Now, it may be that my little animation there is far too extreme. Perhaps we'll never shrink to the point where no one regards us well for our practice of social innovation. But what I want to do is talk about the risks that we might face that that could happen and what we might do about it. And I want to talk in particular about folly and the role of the fool in countering that. But before I do, I want to start with something which was touched upon in the early addresses, something so obvious that it's an entirely unremarkable thing in most of our lives, yet it's of critical significance. And it's to do with the importance of choice, the role that choice plays. Because 
everything that we see around us, everything other than the laws of nature themselves are a product of human choice. On this planet, the things we build could always have been different. This could have been a cube rather than a, a pyramid. It could have been that instead of having a neoclassical building of this kind built in Greece, it could have been some different kind of structure, just as this one from Sydney, it might have been like the one before, a neoclassical building. The fashions that we have, now I would not personally choose to wear something like this, but, but somebody might find it attractive. The technologies that we employ, the symbols we bring to bear on things like currency, even the way that we decorate our bodies with makeups, with piercing, all of these things could be different and all are a product of choice. And most of those things I've shown you, of course, are benign. Some of them have actually aided human prosperity and development over the years. But our choices are not limited just to the benign. We're also capable of choosing this. And this. this. Everything we make is a product of choice. Now understanding that anatomy of choice and the implications for our society here at home and abroad is one of the things that we dedicate our time to doing at the Ethics Centre. That's what we're effectively dealing with day in and day out. How do we assist people and build their capacity to make better choices? To understand that, it means you need to get some sense of the anatomy of folly. And there's a wonderful book written by an American historian called Barbara Tuckman, the title of which is The March of Folly. And what she looks at are four cases, not this one, but here's one that impacts upon us still today, of course, the folly of subprime lending and the global financial crisis that so many people have had to contend with. And as always, it's the people in the poorest and most marginal conditions who bear the greatest cost. But the four cases that she looked at were firstly this one. You all recognise this. It's the, the Greek horse left, left by Odysseus outside the gates of Troy. In they come. The Trojans lift the lintel over their gate and, of course, we know what happens after that. The second case that Barbara Tuckman looks at involves this man. Now, you may not recognise him, but that's Martin Luther, whose decision to nail his theses on the cathedral at Wittenberg starts the Protestant Reformation. And the Roman Catholic Church, which has had spiritual and temporal hegemony over Western Europe for centuries, is suddenly brought to its knees and hundreds of years of warfare over doctrinal differences within the Christian Church of the West begin to be fought. This is a picture of British soldiers firing upon their North American colonists a revolution which leads Britain to lose the majority of its North American colonies. And the final case she looks at is that of Vietnam, where a military superpower, the United States, actually loses a war. Despite the fact that it has superiority of arms, it loses a war because eventually it loses moral authority at home, in particular and abroad. Barbara Tuckman wants to know how do these things happen? By, by any measurement, for those concerned, these have got to have been really bad decisions. Not a great idea to bring in the Greek horse, not a great idea to let Luther loose on the world, not a great idea to sort of pay no heed to the legitimate claims of your North American 
colonists when you're in London and, of course, the way the war was prosecuted. A terrible idea and still a watchword, if you like, for military failure. Now, what Barbara Tuckman does is she doesn't apply the usual tests of historians. She doesn't do this thing where you say, well, look, let's take all the assembled evidence and see what we can discover now and, with the benefit of hindsight, show them where they went wrong. Instead, the fascinating thing in this book is that she applies three tests. Firstly, did they, at the time they were making the decision, recognise the risk that they faced? Secondly, did they, at the time they made the decision, have available to them viable alternatives? There were things that they could have done other than those which they subsequently chose to do. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, did they, at the time of the decision, have people saying out loud, don't do it, this is really dangerous, there are better alternatives, let's do something else. And what Tuckman shows using the evidence that she's assembled is that in each and every one of those cases, those conditions were satisfied. They did recognise the risk. They did have viable alternatives and yet they still didn't. Why? Well, she comes out with a series of possibilities. The first thing she asks is, is it possible that there were circumstances which lead us to believe that we are just foolish creatures, that we're just stupid, that we cannot help ourselves. You may know that quotation from Voltaire that history never repeats itself. Man always does. It's as if it's a, it's a, it's a terribly depressing uh, thought, isn't it? That either we refuse to learn from history or, in fact, we're incapable. I, I sometimes think that we might like, be one of these rats on a wheel going round and round. There's a stick that comes back and hits us in the head each time. We just go faster and we get hit harder and harder. Well, that's one thing she looks at. She says, no, actually, you know, it's an attractive idea in some senses, but in fact, that's not true. There's plenty of evidence to show that human beings can learn from history. So the second thing she looks at is that maybe there are just a few rotten apples who are in key positions at the time that the decisions are being made and if only you got rid of those, then everything would be fine. And she says, no, that's not true either. In fact, what she finds is that in each and every one of these cases, there's a distributed network of leadership all participating in the decisions which give rise to these acts of folly. So, let's see how this can happen because, of course, this hasn't stopped. We still face them now. One of the ways to, to realise this is by looking at pictures like this. Now, you might think this is a strange thing to be doing at this conference but you've probably all seen this image before. Uh, if you have, you'll know that there are two images there. There's the image of an old woman and an image of a young woman. Okay, now this is usually a little test of candour. Uh, how many people cannot see the old woman? Okay, there's usually a few. It's interesting, in groups as small of about seven, there's usually someone who can't see the old woman. People can see the younger woman with much greater ease. So I'll just describe to you how to see them in case it's a bit hard. So the young woman is looking back over her right shoulder. She's got a choker around her neck. Uh, very delicate little snub of a nose. You can just see an eyelash there. And she's wearing some kind of you know, big hair with a kind of a, a, a great headdress and a feather out of it at the top. That's the young woman. The old woman, on the other hand, has got her bony chin 
It's almost like out of a children's uh, fairy, star, fairy tale, like an old witch, but she's got this bony chin tucked into her chest very tight like this. She's got a wart on her nose, a little beady eye which she looks down and, and a thin slit of a mouth. No lips to speak of at all. And she's looking down. And you can just see her. Can everybody see her now? Yeah, not, maybe not everybody can. That's okay though. So the question is, look, when we get these situations, these sorts of images, what is it that makes us that we can or can't see it? See, I haven't changed anything, have I? I haven't added any lines. I haven't taken anything away. I've just simply reframed it for you so you can see it. Well, of course, here's another one of these acts of follies where people may or may not have seen what was going on. Uh, for an earlier one, there was a guy called Stephen Perlstein and the only thing you need to know that's in this quotation is what's in red there, this notion of willful blindness. This is the idea that people can actually see what they're doing and they know that it's wrong, but they do it anyway. And there's no doubt that a certain proportion of the time this is what happens. I know I've done it myself. I've done some things I shouldn't have done and I've known perfectly well what I was doing at the time and I just conveniently turned a blind eye so that I wouldn't be confronted with it. But it turns out that this may not actually be the most significant cause of these acts of folly. So here's another image which you probably haven't seen before. I'm just going to ask somebody, just in the audience, well I won't ask, it'd be hard to do it in this situation, but I'm assuming most people can see there what looks like a, a man with a beard. He's got uh, oak leaves or some kind of vines around his hair. I mean, without framing it too much, it could almost have been a Greco-Roman sculpture that you might have found on a temple at some time in the ancient past. Now, what I'd like you to do is to have a look at this image and can anybody tell me if there's something else there to see? Yeah, what is it? A couple kissing, absolutely. That, gosh, that was quick. Have you seen it before? No, what's that tell us, I wonder? No, <laughs> no it's definitely a couple kissing. Now, the way to see it, it it's, they're underneath an archway. I'll do it on this side and I'll do it on the other. If you look there, you can just see where their lips meet there. He's got a cloak that comes down there. There, their arms cross just there. And that's underneath the archway. I'll do the same on this side. Carol can't see it yet. She's not allowed to go home until she does it. Okay, over here, you see where their lips meet there? And you've got the cloak. There's the arms around the dress. Okay. Now again, you got it yet, Carol? Okay. <laughs> there are always a few sad characters in any audience. Um, <laughs> oh, you didn't see young Okay. Oh, dear. Well, look, don't worry. Um, look, if you don't see it, it's a very simple explanation for this. What I've presented to you with the image before I've told you to look anywhere else is one of the most powerful images you will ever see. It's a human face. And if you think about our survival, our capacity to flourish from the time we're born, one of the critical capacities we need to develop is to recognise other human faces and particularly to interpret them as they, as they change with changes in emotion and things like that. So when you're shown something like a face, uh, we see them in clouds, we see them in stains on bathroom floors. They're, that's how powerful it is. You just see faces everywhere once you let your mind move in that direction. So although I might point to you exactly where it is, and, and Carol, one way to do it is you just put a little frame like that so that it went... Uh, <laughs> even so, it may be that it's too much to do that. So 
I'm going to show you another image now. You'll get this one, Carol. Okay. First of all, Carol, can you, easy win. What's this? Oh, it's a monkey screaming. Okay, can everybody see a, mullet, uh, a monkey screaming? Okay, have a look. Can you see anything else? It's got bolts in it. Yep. Have a look to see if you can see another image. Look carefully. In fact, there is nothing else there. <laughs> <laughs> that is just a picture of a, of a monkey screaming. And you can imagine that if I made it even more graphically realistic. It might be a, a photograph of a monkey being experimented on or it could be a, even a film. You'd say, well, there it is, it's obvious. So now this is where it becomes really extraordinary because there are some people, there are some people who will not see it. They won't see a monkey screaming. Here's what they see. The monkeys on which he worked became research subjects. The electric shocks he gave them were called negative reinforcement and their vain efforts to escape were classified as avoidance behaviour. So here is a research subject receiving negative reinforcement while engaging in avoidance behaviour. It's not a screaming monkey. In fact, there are people who come to this position where if you show them this kind of image in the lab or whatever, that's what they will see. And you just think about how it is that our language can so fundamentally change things from what we know basically to be the case. Uh, weasel words were mentioned in the last session and the way that they work. Last week where I was, the concept of collateral damage does the same thing. What is collateral damage? What it really is, is the broken bodies of usually old men, women and children left on the battlefield innocents who've been injured in the course of war. Change the language, change the concepts and what you stop seeing are things as graphically obvious as this. In fact, what you find is that the greatest challenge that we face is from conditioned blindness. It's in circumstances where people do not actually see things for what they really are. Now, we're used to this concept skip through this. These are some of the things that get in the way but they're not so important to today. We're used to the concept of these things, the elephant in the room, where everybody knows what's there but they won't name them. For me, the elephant in the room is not the dangerous thing. Yes, they can be uncomfortable and a nuisance and they might be a bit dangerous but the more dangerous one is the one up in the top left-hand corner of that image. It's the tiger in the room. Now, this doesn't quite do justice to the phenomenon. I first came across this when I was taking my children to Taronga Park Zoo in Sydney and in the tiger enclosure they had a piece of perspex about this big and when you looked through the perspex you couldn't see in colour because all of us being humans are blessed with the capacity to see in colour. Now animals for the most part only see in black and white. And the tigers in this cage would move and you could see them there, you know, bamboo and things, bright orange stripes, and they'd go into that part of the view where it was obscured by this, this screen and they'd disappear. They'd just disappear. Now, I've seen Indian tigers in the wild and it's pretty hard to see with colour vision. It's almost impossible to see them 
when you don't have coloured vision. And this is one of the things that we need to deal with as a challenge for our society is that it's very easy for people to become conditioned so that they can see every shade of green in the jungle. They can see light green, they can see dark green, they can see all of the greens but they can't see orange. And as such they do not see what is really happening in the world in which they operate. In fact, even good people, and we all know this phenomenon in our lives where you know good people who've done bad things, you ask them about it and you say, did you see at the time what you're doing? They didn't see it. They're not not making it up. They're not trying simply to excuse behaviour that should never have been entertained in the first place. They are telling you the truth when they didn't see it. Why did they not see it? Because they'd been conditioned in a way only to see a small spectrum of the world. Now, some of those people that Carol was speaking that I I, I meet with um, from business and she has slightly hyperbolic. There are some chairmen and CEOs I haven't met or worked with. Uh, But a lot of them are my age or older and they're men and when you tell them that there is a tiger in the room, this is how they respond. If, If any of you have had small children, you might remember that extraordinary moment when they come up to you and they say, you can't see me. (laughs) There are so many grown-ups in positions of power (laughs) who do that. You tell them that there is a tiger and unless it's a legal tiger, which they've been trained to see, or an accounting tiger, or a conservative tiger, or whatever kind of political tiger, unless it's something which they can see because they've already mastered their capacity, their response to this is to say, it can't see me because I won't look for it. I won't reveal myself not to have mastered that part of the spectrum which would allow me to see this. And So you must find this day in, day out talking to some people where you try to explain to them the tiger that's in the room and they just won't look. Not only will they not see, but they will not look. And of course, nature in general refuses to be tamed by our ignorance of it. The tiger in the room, when somebody walks into its jungle and doesn't look for it or can't see it, it doesn't say, oh well, I'll let, it, let them go. It's just an easy lunch. The risks we face as a society or the risks that organisations face lie in this phenomenon. It's what happens when these magnificent strategic risks, the tigers in the room, these things are not seen or simply ignored. So one of the questions is how do we see them? How do we get our society to see the tigers in the room that are presented when social justice is laid waste, when communities become divided, when the sense of hope and aspiration for whole sections of the people are muted because they have no realistic prospect. How do you get people to see this? Well, in ethics in general, there are two great enemies of ethics. I describe them both by two true stories, one involving another former Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam. Gough Whitlam actually confirmed this to me as a a true story, otherwise I perhaps would have been thinking it merely apocryphal. But he was invited while Prime Minister of Australia to give a speech in London on Australia's economic prospects. 
And so he was preparing for this speech and it was going to be to a gathering like this, full of the good and the great though from the financial centre of London. And his host on this occasion was the Lord Mayor of London who was an arch-conservative. And Whitlam, thinking of himself as a reforming Labor Prime Minister, thought that he and the, the conservative Lord Mayor would have nothing in common except that he noticed on a briefing sheet provided by a protocol officer that there was one important biographical fact about this person. And that was that the Lord Mayor of London had been an oarsman. He'd rowed for his school, he'd rowed for his university, I think he'd gone on and he'd rowed for Great Britain. So Gough Whitlam stood up and said, Your Worships, my Lords, ladies and gentlemen, I came here this evening thinking that His Worship and I have absolutely nothing in common. But now I see that we are united by one thing because as you know, he is a distinguished oarsman and I am a politician. And the thing that unites us is that we both look one way and go the other. <laughs> I wish Julia Gillard had stayed for that. Uh, <laughs> um, but of course, you know, it's sad. It's a sad joke today. It is actually a really sad joke uh, that we're living in a time in our democracy when you can say one thing and, and do something so completely different and assume that we don't care. And that's what I find so insulting about this. They assume that we don't care, that as long as there's some prospect of prosperity, we'll just set it all aside, that the character of a person and their words means nothing. And it's, it's almost as if they... I don't know whether they trust us as, as citizens to be able to rise to whatever challenge we might face if we're actually told the truth. But I also have to acknowledge this notion of saying one thing and doing something else is not confined just to politics. Uh, we see it in all manner of institutions which betray their central purpose. I think we're at this period which I would call a long, in this period I'd call a long age of forgetting in which institutions that were established for great reasons when they were first brought into existence have lost sight of that. They've forgotten the purposes for which they are established in which they are meant to serve and a corrupted form of them so entranced by their external format takes root and then they betray themselves. I'll give you one example. I, a lot of people cheered when they mentioned about the Royal Commission looking into the institution or treatment of, of, of children was mentioned. Um, I know that Catholic care is involved in this, but here's an example of the sort of thing I mean. For over 2,000 years, the Christian church taught that love was more important than law, that people are more important than property, that you should stand up and face the truth about yourself and your place in the world. And yet those men who were running the churches when confronted with allegations to do with the sexual abuse of children and other vulnerable people, they responded by putting the law before love, by putting their property before people, by protecting their backs rather than facing the truth. And that was part of the devastation of this. The horrors of the original abuse were compounded by an institution which betrayed the very things that it said that it believed in. And you can look at it now 
in universities, corporations, parliament. Time and time again, institutions which were established for good, even noble purposes, they betray their central purpose. Now, is that because people in the morning, archbishops, prime ministers, corporation heads, whatever, do they wake up in the morning and say, my task for today is to see how much cynicism I can generate by lunchtime. I want to engage in as much hypocrisy as I can today so that there's a fountain of cynicism flowing through our society because it is like an asset. It does eat away at the bonds of community when people become not merely sceptical but cynical. The truth is they don't wake up like that. That's not how they wake up. What happens is something, again, different, obvious, but extraordinary. I was sitting in a taxi cab just after I came back from Cambridge to do my current work, so it's a long time ago, and there was a Royal Commission into the building industry being conducted in New South Wales. Those of you who come from other states, you might know that we have Royal Commissions into one form of corruption or another (coughs) in New South Wales with a fair degree of frequency. (laughs) Anyway, this one had been going on and I was talking to the taxi driver about his life and times and he was telling me his life story, which they sometimes do. And he said to me, he said, mate, I haven't been driving cabs all that long. I said, oh yeah, what did you used to do? He said, I used to be a concrete truck driver. So I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. Here we've got a Royal Commission looking into allegations of corruption in the building industry and a guy who's actually been working in it and only recently left. So I said to him, uh, well, you've read all this stuff, I suppose. I mean, what's the truth? What's it like? He goes, oh, mate, 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 mate. He said, mate, um, no, you'd be building a hospital for the nuns out at St Mary's and one of the bosses or one of his mates wants to have an extension to his house or a swimming pool put in, so we divert truckloads of concrete and before you know it, there's the extension, there's a swimming pool. I said, oh, that's, that's, that's pretty bad. He said, oh, no, mate, mate, he said, Something worse than that was happening. That's why I got out. Something worse than that. And I'm thinking to myself, naively perhaps, what's worse than stealing from nuns? (laughs) That struck me me as bad. So I'm imagining whole buildings being relocated in the dead of night. Anyway, I'm I'm on the edge of my seat and this guy says, no, mate, 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 no. He said, mate, had to get out, mate. He said, "Uh, somebody stole $20 from the lockers in the workshop where I used to get changed. I wasn't going to have a bar of that. So now I've got a sense of the proportion. (laughs) For him, the fact that somebody had stolen $20 from his locker was far worse than all the rest of it. You know, I thought, well, this, if nothing else, is a good opportunity to talk about the Ethics Centre and the work that we do. And so I began to tell him about our prospects. And as I did, this guy's face changed. He, he, He lit up this great big smiling face. So he had one hand on the steering wheel like this, and I can still see him doing this. He's got the other hand going, bang, like this, bang, mate, 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 mate. He said, mate, that's what we need, mate, an ethics centre, mate, an ethics centre, mate. And I'm thinking now that this man has been convinced by the creation of this ethics centre to think that now no one's going to steal from the nuns and the money will be safe in the lockers and all things are being right. So I thought early on in my career in this work, this is fantastic. I'd, I'd managed to connect with this man. So we arrive at the um, airport and I ask for a receipt for my taxi fare. He says, um, yeah, mate, now how much do you want it for? <laughs> True. 
So maybe I should have packed up then and stopped and there wouldn't have been a coup in Thailand last week and it would have been a lot better world. No, it, it was... It was such an extraordinary thing for him to say. So I, I sat there, sort of stunned. I actually told him the right uh, answer. I once joked about that to a group of engineers, all of whom had had a, an irony bypass. They got very annoyed with me. So I, I, gave him the, I gave him the right amount. He wrote it down. And then I asked him, look, don't you think it's a little bit odd? You know, we've just had this conversation about things and after all that, you've asked me how would I like, in effect, to rip off an ethics centre? And, and his face changed. He didn't get angry. He, he wasn't angry. He, he was just slightly, um, well, it was like a blank, really. But he said to me things which opened like a, a huge lock to understand this. He said, but mate, he said, mate, everybody does it. That, that's just, no. But he said, that's just the way we do things around here. Of course it doesn't make it right. Somebody's getting very upset down here because it doesn't make right. I know it doesn't. But it, it gave me this insight into what was going on. Because when you look at what people do day in, day out, and I'd ask you to reflect on this even in your own organisations, and just ask how often might somebody say in your organisation, and it doesn't have to be something like ripping off the ethics in it, it might be just day-to-day conduct. You say, why do we do this? Or because that's just the way it's always been done. Because everybody does it. I've been into so many different types of organisations, all here, abroad, whatever, and you ask people to explain. And what they don't do, typically, some do, but typically most don't, is they don't say, oh, well, we do this because here's our defining purpose. These are our values and principles and these are how the things that we say we do and express it. Instead, for ease and convenience, what happens is that more often than not, people are doing things because that's just the way it's always been done. That's what everybody does. Now, this turns out to be then one of the great sources of trouble in the world. When you find people in those situations where they don't think, they don't attach it to purpose, to their values or principles. In fact, Barbara Tuckman, the historian I mentioned, who wondered how those four things had happened. When she'd excluded all other possibilities, what she discovered was the prevalence of what she called wooden-headedness, or what I would call unthinking custom and practice. The inclination to do things simply because that's what everybody does. Now, that's whole industries you can find this in whole parts of society which uncritically accept that this is just the way it is until something goes wrong. Then when something's gone wrong, people look back and say, how could it possibly have been the case that we were doing this or that? Now, there is an antidote to this, but it's a troubling one and it's for all of us to consider, particularly in these times. And the antidote is in a particular model of leadership as opposed to management. The world needs wonderful managers who are able to keep things running as they ought to run. I think of organisations sometimes like corks in a stream. And sitting on the cork are managers who can pull the levers when they need to be pulled, 
press the buttons when they need to be pressed, keep the whole thing operating as it ought. But then there are the leaders and what leaders refuse ever to do is simply to be taken just where the stream happens to be flowing. What leaders engage in are acts of constructive subversion and that's what I think leadership is. It's constructive subversion. What do you subvert as a leader? You subvert unthinking custom and practice. A leader never ever accepts that something is done simply because it's always been done this way or because everybody does it. They constantly call an organisation back to its purpose, back to its related values and principles and ask why not do it this way. And they're constructive because their task is not to destroy the joint nor to impose upon it their own idiosyncratic view of how it ought to be. Their job is to help each organisation to become more like the thing that it says it wants to be. But to do this requires vast reserves of moral courage because almost no one wants you to do it. There'll be people who report to you in a leadership position who'll say, why ask all these questions? Don't you trust us? Don't you know that we're just going to get on with it? You're just making life more difficult. You've got peers who say, can't you just shut up? You know, you're making us look bad. All these questions, yeah, goody two-shoes, smarty pants. And you've got superiors. Those who say, it's above your pay grade. Don't ask. Now, don't think of this now just in terms of organisational structures. Now think about it in terms of societies and what it means to challenge the prevailing norms of a society embedded within its political class, embedded with institutional arrangements. That's where the moral courage is required to speak out. And of course, you might have been wondering when you saw the title of the address today, The Luck of Fools, who are the fools? It's us. It's not just the fool of the kind that Barbara Tuckerman speaks of, but it's the fool of Shakespeare's King Lear. The fool, the person authorised or with the courage to speak truth to power. That's what we need today. We need a movement of people who are prepared to lead in the terms I've tried to describe all of us fools willing to speak truth to power. Whether it's about social justice, the basic needs of a community that aims to flourish, whatever area where you see that power seeks to dominate and silence and to misrepresent the fundamental truth of the world in which we live, that is where the fools are. Australia has had its fair of share of luck and in fact some of it made, some of it bestowed. People who were born here certainly have no claim upon that luck. It's pure accident. Any one of us who were lucky enough to be born here could have been born in conditions of penury or oppression in some other part of the world. There is absolutely nothing we do to deserve the bounty that we have in this land. What we can do though is earn some measure of it by the way in which we choose to respond, the way we speak truth to power. And part of that means challenging some of the dominant ways we think and talk about the world. 
For example, have you noticed that virtually every single issue that comes before us as a nation now can only be resolved by an appeal to economic utility? That's, that's the clinching argument and we've bought into it. I'll give you three examples. When the first debates about petrol sniffing in central Australia were introduced, everybody knew that there was a solution which was to introduce opal fuel which doesn't have the volatiles that cause the terrible illness and sometimes death of people who sniff petrol. Everybody knew what to do but how did they manage to do it? Well, it was only after a report by Access Economics was commissioned to show that it would cost less in healthcare and other things. Oh, we said, oh, it's okay then, we can introduce we can introduce opal fuel. The environmental movement at the height of the debate about global warming latched onto a report by Sir Nicholas and now Lord Nicholas Stern who had been at the World Bank to say that if we didn't act it would cost too much. The environmental movement says, oh, well then we'll drop all of our language about intergenerational equity, our duty to the future, a duty of stewardship not only to other generations but to other species. No, if we don't do anything it will cost too much. 2008-2009, two charities which had actually been established to combat child abuse went to Access Economics to get a report to show that child abuse costs too much. Now what does that say about us as a society? Where have we come to when we think that the way we nail an argument about child abuse is that it costs too much. Can you imagine just over 200 years ago when William Wilberforce stood before the dispatch box in the House of Commons giving his great speeches to do with the abolition of slavery, talking about the fundamental rights of human beings not to be enslaved, not to be the property of others. Can you imagine him standing before the House of Commons and saying as his closing remarks, and finally, I have a report from Access Economics to show that it costs too much. <laughs> of course he didn't. He had a confidence in a language, an ethical language, which he could quote knowing that his own society would respond to this, that he would not be reduced as we are today to the idea that everything has its value only measured in economic terms. Now, that is such a dominant idea that even those who might naturally be opposed to it feel required to collude with it. But you need the fool who is willing to speak truth to power. So, for me, the central issue is this. We saw Australia once, not literally as a great landmass, but as a place which had the confidence, the language, the concepts by which it was going to actually stand for something and be brave in its experimentation, in its pursuit of justice in a way which the world could marvel at. We've seen glimpses of this from time to time but my argument to you today is that we've come to a point where we've lost confidence in that, where we have a political class that seems unable to understand or to embrace these things and that requires a new form of leadership, not from those who are charged formally with the duty to lead, but by all of us, by all of us in this room, the community. 
This is not a task for any particular individual because they've been nominated or awarded a certain role. It's for us. But for all of us in the room, it's going to require that extraordinary moral courage in order to play the part of the fool. Thank you. I'm happy to take questions. Yes, thank Thanks, Simon. That was, that was fantastic. And I, I should have said in my intro to Simon that our community has been really lucky to have Simon on the board as a director since we first started. So he's been phenomenal in the advice and wise counsel that he's been able to, able to give us. Simon has agreed to take some questions and because I'm going to be fielding the questions, I'm going to ask the first one. Okay. And you can ask about anything, by the way. <laughs> what I said today or other things. Okay. So, and, and, and Simon's just written um, a relatively controversial article yes. around this. So, so I thought I would ask him, Simon, what would a political leader look like who engaged in acts of constructive subversion, who subverts the, um, well, the current thinking and practice of not telling the truth to get elected. Okay. So, uh, Carol mentioned a piece that I published last Monday um, which sought to apply to the current political situation thinking around an area in political philosophy called the problem of dirty hands. And the problem of dirty hands, it, it, it emerges in various ways uh, but the idea is that it's not possible to govern without getting your hands dirty. And the usual examples which people like Michael Walzer gives, and he's probably written one of the best essays on this, is of a person who might have devoted their whole life to human rights. They may have been, say, a founder of Amnesty International. But then they find themselves in a position as Attorney General where the law enforcement agencies come to them to say a number of terrorists have planted bombs in primary schools dotted around the city and we've captured one of them. And if you authorise us, we can torture this person and we may not save every child but we will save some. So would you please sign the paper? Would you authorise the application of torture? And Michael Walzer says, well, what should such a person do? The first thing he says is, we do not want to have somebody in such a high office who would heedlessly sign this just as a matter of course. In fact, we want a person who, if they were to sign this, they would destroy themselves. They would violate everything they hold dear. If they, if they were to sign it, they would never look themselves in the mirror again without seeing self-loathing or shame. We want somebody who, to whom it is unthinkable that they should apply torture. Then in his essay he says, and we want someone who is a good enough servant of the public that they will sign it. And the third step is we want them to insist on being punished for doing so, so that we recognise forever the distinction between what is necessary and what is right. They should insist that they are prosecuted and jailed or whatever other penalty should be applied in such circumstances. So you can probably see the logic of this as you apply it to the contemporary situation. If you had a politician who 
found themselves in circumstances where they had made promises to the public and let's not pretend this is not an, it's an insignificant issue. Our democracy is founded fundamentally on our capacity as citizens to consent to be governed. It's all about consent. We consent whenever we vote. If you are lied to, there is no consent worth having because the only consent that matters is free prior and informed consent. And if everything that you have agreed to is based on false commitments in circumstances where the person making the commitment could reasonably have known what they were doing, which is how our system works now with budget transparency, then it's not proper consent. But you can imagine a person in politics then encountering a situation where they genuinely believe that they need to break their word. But the thing about the Volta essay is that you wouldn't simply leave it at that and say, oh, well, you all know that we break promises, you all know that it shouldn't happen, uh, that you shouldn't hold us accountable, do it at the ballot box. No, what a person would do if they follow the logic of the problem of dirty hands is they would stand up at a press conference and they would say, uh, I made a series of um, solemn commitments before the election. They're essential to the way in which democracy operates. I find myself in a position now where necessity demands that I do something other than which I promised. I'm committed to having that happen, but as of today I resign my position and I remain available for other forms of public service. In other words, who would say that a democracy can never be of the strength it should be if we accept the proposition that you can lie or break promises without consequence? that you take upon yourself. And of course, in the current situation, we saw a, a former Prime Minister here earlier today who was excoriated because they had said one thing and did something else. And the current government came to power on such a powerful mandate of criticism of its op opponents and claims for itself that it would be truthful, that it would honour its commitments. And this is why I think, irrespective of the policy issues, which are grave enough, there is this sense of hypocrisy which I think is biting deeply into the public. And it's, you know, the thing that upsets me a bit is that our democracy, our parliament, they're all public institutions. They're, they're ours. They're, they're not the plaything of private associations which are the political parties. They're private groups. They, ha they haven't got a right to trash that. Thanks, Simon. Um, other questions? Yes, here. The lady in the green. Thanks, Maureen. Do you want to stand up so Simon can see you? Thank you. Hi, Simon. My name is Jane Ward. Thank you. I think that was one of the most um, touching talks I've ever heard. Um, yeah, my question is around, or it's really some thoughts that I've had recently of every Friday night I go to Shabbat and my partner's dad always says something controversial and we sometimes engage in the debate and often we just go, yeah, yeah, and, and move on. And it occurred to me the other day of thinking about um, uh, that, yeah, what, 95% of scientists believe that climate change is actually happening and yet uh, so much um, airways have been given to the other side of... Um, maybe we should have been ignoring them all along. Ignore the people that are saying, no, you're wrong. 
Um, yeah, so I'm just really wondering about what it is that we can do to ignore those negatives, just as, you know, I was on Facebook, there was just way too many images of Abbott lately. I'm like, no, we don't want to see these images anymore. We want to see the new leaders. We want to see new images. Thanks, Jane. Well, um, there's a few things. Firstly, uh, on that particular issue to do with the climate, uh, the idea that you should provide equal space to every contending view, irrespective of its veracity, doesn't make sense to me. That's the first thing. But I think science itself, though, does invite critiques. And so that's an important factor in this, that the scientific consensus has always been, prior to any agreement on a particular fact, that any hypothesis worth its salt must have this capacity to be falsified. That's, you, know, you go back to the work of people like Karl Popper and everything, falsification, and the potential is what makes for a good hypothesis. So you really do need to allow that kind of conversation to take place, even if it only leads to refinement of the agreed knowledge there, because science often proceeds in terms of its development by people coming out of left field with quirky ideas, strange interpretations of the data and things of that kind. So I wouldn't say that we should shut it down. Actually, I find and have found in my life the most powerful way to engage with people is to take them absolutely seriously not with some guile, not with like, ha-ha, I'm going to trick you, but what would it mean actually to take you seriously given the kinds of views that you express? Because invariably if you do that, um, first of all you avoid people putting up the shutters and seeking to defend before a conversation has even commenced, which means you get nowhere. But secondly what you find is that invariably people will, for their own purposes, defy the boundary conditions within which they won't go further. They'll say, oh, if it's serious, I'd go this far, but I wouldn't go that far. Oh, you say, why that far? Why have you drawn the boundary here, not there? And it becomes a very powerful way then in which to engage. And I don't know how we apply that then to a large political or social conversation or to the content of Facebook. Uh, but I do think that, sort of going to the second point that you made, that we should, through our own choice editing, remember those pictures I showed you, Every single thing that we make is the product of our own choices as a society or as individuals. We do have choices about what we reward by what we watch, what we buy, um, how we prov provide um, coverage or prominence and we should be mindful of those things because it's the conjunction of all our individual choices which gives the tone of the society in which we live. Thank you. Amy, you've got someone who has a question. Could you Hi. stand up, please, so Simon can see you? Thank you. Of course. Thank you, Simon, uh, for making us think. Um, I'm Peter Matthey from WA. I've been interested for quite a while in the whole petrol-sniffing issue. And the one thing at the time when we went for Opal Petrol that stuck in my mind was the enormous amount of money that was involved mm. and the relatively small number of young people that were practising sniffing. Um, I'm curious about the connection with Access Economics and wondering if you could share with us a bit more about how that decision was made and potentially who paid for the Access Economics report. Yeah. So my understanding of it is that it was paid for by um, 
a one of the one of the property companies that had a resort in the area uh, that they wanted to try and convince government to act on what it believed to be the just uh, policy position. And so they went to them to get the study done showing that in the long term it would cost too much not to do anything. Now, I, I have no problem with that being part of the story. I think understanding a suite of different issues, including economic implications, is a responsible thing to do. So please don't misunderstand that part of what I was arguing. My concern is it's become the only thing that counts, as if all the arguments that could have been made about the welfare of these children or any of the other examples I gave counted for nothing other than that. And you'll occasionally see this now. You'll see people in, you know, in political judgments. I say, oh, well, of course it's the right thing, but... And then they lay down their, their, their final card, which is the economics one. I think that's damaging our society. And, and in a sense, the kind of language that Wilberforce and others use and which I might be inclined to use, it's being marginalised. Maybe not in a room like this, but in a lot of places if you talk about you know, the core values and principles or basic rights, people will say, oh, that's, that's fluff. That's not the thing that serious people do. Serious people only consider the hard-nosed economic realities. I think that's mistaken. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Shannon. I think we've got time for two more questions. Amy? Hi, thanks. Um, the question I have is around, uh, I guess increasingly I've become concerned by language and you talked about that in terms of words like democracy and when we see people protesting that there's a sense of that being undemocratic in some ways and even words around it being an assault and in years past it was about being un-Australian if you were dissenting in some ways. So I wanted to hear about what your thoughts are around um, protest and dissent and also accountability, that there's also some narrative at the moment that we can't do anything until the next election. Um, so how, um, how do we hold people to be accountable if they're not resigning as politicians themselves um, as people? Well, I think we've got to use the, the full suite of activities. I mean, the notion of um, conscientious objection is a very honourable tradition that's been practised in many times where important issues have been at stake. Uh, there are such things as unjust laws and they need to be protested against. There are unjust policies and they need to be protested against. I think protests should be peaceful. I think they should be direct in the sense that people should be able to march in their own streets and express their views because we are the authors of democracy. I, I, I did my doctorate was on democracy. That's what I spent years working on. And you distinguish democracy as opposed to a theocracy or an aristocracy or a plutocracy, any of the asses, according to where the ultimate source of authority is. So in a theocracy, it's ultimately in the hands of God. In a plutocracy, it's the wealthy. In a democracy, the ultimate source of authority is us, the people, the governed. So for us not to be able to express our views directly as part of that is a nonsense. Now, of course, the other part of this is that the tradition, the noble tradition of conscientious objection means that if you do this, you are also prepared to accept the consequences. Just as I would say of a Prime Minister that if you have made solemn promises and you claim they were central to your, your political ethos and you felt necessary to break them, you should accept the consequences, so I should also as a citizen. So I'd be encouraging the full suite of things ranging from 
uh, public protests, letter writing and emails, <coughs> everything, if you've got a concern. And one of the things I hope for is that a younger generation of Australians, mm. maybe for the first time now in a couple of decades, might be activated to become engaged in political life. Yeah, and I think social media is a very powerful, mm. powerful, powerful tool. Tanya uses Twitter very effectively. Um, two more questions, Maureen, and then one over there. Yeah, this side of the room has been missing out. I know. Well, I haven't seen any red paddles. There's one. Sorry. No, please. Um, hi, I'm Shristi Bali from Lakeview Senior College and I'd like to ask in reference to the first question that you answered, why you believe that it's ethical for politicians to have to resign in public um, to meet their broken promises and why there isn't any other ethical solutions than just um, resigning from their actual position. Thank you. Um, because when you are a political leader and you staked your claim for election on veracity and that how the other side were fundamentally not to be given a mandate again because they broke their word, you've actually positioned yourself right in the centre of a debate. Now, the unfortunate thing for Tony Abbott, and this is nothing he could control, is that he is also reaping a succession of broken promises by politicians going back decades forget about which party or whoever, where the sense of the community's disengagement from politics has become so great that it requires a particularly significant act by him at this point in time that perhaps wouldn't have been necessary in the past if this had been a, an early transgression. And so it's to do with the measure of significance of the commitments made by him in order to secure power that it gives rise to a corresponding obligation of equal weight. That, that, that's, the, that's the basis of it. And that I think that other sorts of things, and it's be hard to understand what another sort of thing would be on his part, that would actually show that he was seriously committed to the idea that this is something that ought not to happen, that this should not be the standard for politics as usual. In the absence of thinking of something which has that, that, that weight, that's where I think the balance of obligation lies. Yeah, to put it in your language of before, um, Tony Abbott is not subverting the unthinking custom and practice of lying to get elected. No, right? he, 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 is, he is assuming, I think, that's a right. role which is, that's what happens. I mean, that's the kind of the narrative that's coming to all of us as citizens is, just go politicians along with it, that's lie. just what politicians do. That's exactly and I'm right. saying, no, that's not what politicians should do. Yeah. There's a different yeah. way. We've got two questions from the one table, yeah. the lady in black and white and the lady in the red, and then we're going to have to wrap up for afternoon tea because Dennis is giving me the wind-up. Oh, it's Dennis. I'll try and be quick. Um, we were just discussing about that idea about um, broken promises. Sorry, and maybe sorry, where are you? Oh, I'm here. Yeah. Karen. Oh, sorry, there you are. Yeah. We were just discussing with what you said about the broken promises. Maybe they should make it a policy that if they break a promise that um, they mandatorily have to make it a federal policy. Well, Julian Burnside, who, who you would all know, he's argued that if you break a promise, you should go to jail yeah. as a politician. But, yeah, but the other, the other thing I was just going to say is the other thing is, you know, it's just this whole idea of the big stick and how you're talking about the fools. Yeah. How do you stop this idea, of which is trickling down at the moment, of this idea about open your mouth, you get nothing, do the right thing, 
Yeah, we'll hand you something. Might be well, that, that's why um, it requires not just courage but also discernment. I don't believe that any of us should heedlessly throw ourselves onto the funeral pyre of integrity. It's not about just going up in a few brief and beautiful sparks. It's, um, it's about finding really smart ways, usually in conjunction with others, to do it. And pick your time, pick your battle. The trouble is that if you take that too far, it can become a way of rationalising doing nothing. And we all know that, that, that wonderfully potent quotation from Edmund Burke, all that is needed for the triumph of evil is that good people do nothing. Yeah. That's all it needs. Stand and watch, do nothing. So, yes, it's about discernment, but ultimately, if you care enough, it's about also having the nous to find the smart ways to do it. But occasionally you will hazard things. I've, I've had to do it on a number of occasions. Um, you know, got beaten up by various people. We, we introduced um, ethics classes in New South Wales for children who don't go to scripture, changing 150 years of quite bad law. And uh, I got beaten up regularly by George Pell and Peter Jensen and all sorts of people. But if, you, if you're right in what you stand for, I actually believe, affirmed by experience, that you will prevail as long as you've got good enough arguments. You might get a few scars, but you will prevail. Last question. Um, hi, everyone. My name's Emma. Um, that's actually a really good segue for me, Simon. Don't all start oh, throwing eggs, but I'm actually... Um, wanting to go into politics and I've been pre-selected in my community as, a, um, uh, as the candidate for the state elections in New South Wales. Um, the first point I want to say is that not all your politicians are the same. Some of us do listen and want to be a point of difference. There's no Grange in my cupboard and I don't even know what Grange is. I'm too much <laughs> of a bogan to know what that is. Um, I come today with a long list of voluntary organisations that I represent. So. Don't tar them all with the same brush and please don't tar me with the same brush. Um, I'm struggling a little bit with that. But my question, Simon, is, um, is for you about the media ownership and the media's portrayal and particularly the role the media played in the last federal election, which I think we can all agree was pretty one-sided. What's your theory, your thought, um, response, I guess, in, in response to the, the freedom of speech and their ability to do what they did and I think you only need to watch a few media or watch episodes to realise how weighted that mm. was. Well, the first thing, I think we should all give you a round of applause for going into politics. <laughs> no, it's, um, it used to be the most noble calling of a citizen. It was. It was a noble calling and, it, and, and the people who go into it, they give up large amounts of their private lives. Even their identity is affected by it. So politics is, is something that can be better than the way it is practised now. And there are many people of considerable uh, virtues who go in, but they sell their souls eventually because of the way the party political system operates. And I don't know what party you're in, but the way in which caucuses operate and the, and the preferment that comes for those who want to be ministers and all the rest, there's a corrosive effect which any individual has to contend with. Um, but to come to your question about the media, the media plays a vital role in this. I mean, it, it glories in its reputation as being the the fourth state, oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. And, and, but, but of course, it, it is often incredibly self-serving in which it, it fails to distinguish, for example, between what is in the public interest and what the in public happens to be interested in. So there are these gotcha stories. There are these uh, trying to entrap politicians into saying things 
which any sensible person should say. Like, I, I would love to see a politician, if asked about taxation, feeling comfortable enough to say, actually, there is a case for increased taxation in order to be able to fund the provision of adequate services. Now, you, you may not agree with it, or somebody obviously does, but, <laughs> but you may not agree with it, but the fact that you don't or do, we shouldn't pillory the politician for having spoken honestly about those things and say, gotcha, gotcha. And maybe that would, if the media took a slight step back and thought more responsibly about its own position, then it would not be leading some of these questions about broken promises where people make commitments they honestly know they probably cannot or will not actually honour. Mm. On balance, uh, I have no problem with media becoming partisan if they declare themselves to be such. So I spent a lot of time, as you know, in the UK where no one has any doubt about what The Guardian stands for as opposed to The Telegraph or The Times or things like that. But you know exactly what is the political diet that you will be served by those particular organs of the press. And it's the pretense of being balanced or disinterested which I think annoys people when we'd be far better if people were simply to say, this is where we are, we're running for that and not playing not really pretend to give equal ground, except on things which transcend politics, you know, as in party politics. I think there are some things which are so important for a community that just as a responsible editor or media proprietor, you should basically down tools on the political infighting or the ideology and say this is something which we will jointly treat with a degree of responsibility and balance because of its significance. Now, they may, those issues may not be that common, but you've got to have that capacity as well. But make sure that you don't shield yourself in public interest when in fact you're simply trying to advance commercial or sexual interest or an undeclared political preference. Please join me in thanking Simon for a wonderful presentation. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, We'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.